Let's look at the Bible. It's good. Let's look at the Bible. Father, I want to pray that you'd open the Bible to us, that you'd help to speak to us, that you'd help my words to fall to the ground and your words to live in our hearts and transform us and our communities and our families in joy and in love. Amen. Okay. Well, so I was preparing this talk last week and uh, I was a bit pressed for time because uh, for those of you who don't know, um, we've got some family issues at the moment. Heather's father's very unwell again. Uh, So uh, she's moving backwards and forwards to Milton Keynes a fair amount and I was... Uh, a little bit uh, pushed for time last week. And uh, so I was tra- asking myself and praying about what it was that I needed to open this talk. And then it, it occurred to me, as it very often does when I'm praying, um, what I needed was Arnold Schwarzenegger. And uh, not just because I have a range of excellent Arnie impressions that I feel are becoming more and more obsolete every year, so I'm going to bring them back. Uh, but because it illustrates nicely what I think Jesus is talking about uh, this uh, this week, and so uh, we're going to watch a trailer for an Arnie movie, uh, one of my favourite Arnie movies, uh, and not just because I like, uh, it's not the muscles from Brussels, is he? that's John called Van Damme, uh, not just because I like Arnie, but the governator, there we go, that's what he's, uh, but because uh, it does actually um, uh, illustrate something of what Jesus is talking about, so there is a point to this, but also I love this film. Uh, so, this is the trailer for True Lies. Have you ever seen True Lies? If you haven't seen True Lies, hopefully this will whet your appetite. You can pick it up for like 60p on Amazon. Um, so, I'm going to hope this plays okay. Is he going to play? Yes.
Okay, so if you've not seen that film, it's brilliant, right? Okay, how can you not love a film where he walks out and says, here's my invitation, and blows up the whole place? Right. I, I showed the trailer, not just because I have a, a secret love for all things comedy and Austrian. So uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in an action comedy is uh, a, like my sweet spot. Um, but the premise of the movie, if you've not seen it, I'm not going to spoil it for you, although you pretty much have seen it now, that's the movie. Um, it is that uh, Arnie has been married to Jamie Lee Curtis for years and she thinks he's a computer salesman and uh, really he's an all-action spy, right? Um, you're asked to suspend your disbelief that uh, you have many computer salesmen who look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but leaving that aside... Uh, she believes he's a computer salesman, he's a spy, and she accidentally finds out by sort of blundering into the middle of one of his missions that he's really a spy and that she didn't know the man she'd been married to at all. That she thought he was really dull and uh, not uh, very interesting, and her relationship was not what it seemed on the surface. Their relationship was not what it seemed on the surface, that he was always pretending to be someone he wasn't. And uh, the whole movie then explores how she comes to terms with that and uh, how they then save the world as well from being blown up. Um, So uh, it's brilliant. But it also illustrates something of what Jesus actually warns about as he concludes his manifesto for how God intends humanity to live. So for the past uh, 20 of my sermons thereabouts, we've been looking at Jesus describing how God intends people to live. What is it that God means for humanity? And uh, we've followed that journey all the way through from uh, the what's called the Beatitudes at the beginning, which begin with this extraordinary announcement, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And followed it all the way through, Jesus getting progressively more and more radical in what he says. Uh, Not only be faithful in your relationships, but uh, secret in your giving. Forgive your enemies. Uh, Be unhypocritical with people. Never judge someone else. Judge yourself. Be discerning. And he gets all the way through all of this stuff. And, And at the end of his sermon, he concludes with a warning. Actually, with three warnings. Uh, describing the ways that people can react to what Jesus is saying. And one of them was that we can react to it by following, by listening to false teachers. And we, we thought about that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that what Jesus warns about is actually there are sometimes there are people who come along who tell us what we want to hear, not what we need to hear. They tell us what makes us feel good rather than what makes God happy. So instead of teaching us to forgive and love our enemies, they might teach us that we are right and that we should visit vengeance upon them. And it's what we want to hear, so yes, we go ahead and do it. They might, instead of teaching us to give to the poor, they might teach us that we're rich because God blesses us. We are rich because God blesses us, but he blesses us in order to bless them. And actually, we, we hear what we want to hear, and therefore we get misled. And Jesus warns about this. He says these people look like sheep, but really they're wolves. And you need to know that because wolves eat sheep. And then he turns and says, actually, it's not just teachers who can mislead us. We can mislead ourselves. We can mislead ourselves. Particularly a risk for the religious. uh, That we become, if you like, 
mini Arnolds. Now, in many, in many ways, I would love to be a mini Arnold. Uh, but the risk of self-deception and deceiving everyone except Jesus is a real one. That we kid ourselves about who we are and what we're doing. And I always try and give a summary of what we are um, thinking about each week so that we can remember it. You can write it down if you're making notes. If you get asked by someone at home uh, what it is that you uh, learned at church today, I, I uh, call it my lunchtime summary. I would call it my Catherine summary. I had a very good friend at university um, whom I love dearly and uh, still love to this day, still in contact with her to this day, who didn't come to church. But every time I came back from church, she would always ask me or very often ask me, what did you think about today? And I never had a good answer. Uh, I would always say something like, oh, we, we read Matthew 7, right? which is totally ridiculous, like meaningless to her. And the conversation went nowhere. And I've thought about that since. So this is your Catherine summary. This is your lunchtime summary. This is what we're learning, what Jesus is teaching. The kingdom of heaven is given to those who are humble, seek grace, and are willing to obey Jesus. The kingdom of heaven, which is love, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit, St. Paul says, or eternal life, Jesus describes it as, is given to those who are humble, seek grace, and are willing to obey Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is given to those who are humble, seek grace, and are willing to obey Jesus. As ever, we're going to read from several bits of the Bible. So if you have a Bible, you might want to open it. And we need to update the Bible. Since these, these Bibles were bought, uh, they've translated the, or updated the translation that we use. So uh, you might find there's slight wording differences where they've tried to make it more contemporary English. Um, but it's basically the same as the, the Bibles at the back of church. So try to read along with me. We're going to read from Matthew 7. Shall I use this one? I find my eyesight's getting worse. Matthew 7 and verse 21 to 23. So if, you're, if you've picked up one of the Bibles from the back, it's on page 972. I think that's probably the same in all the NIVs. Um, if you're on an electronic Bible, it's about three summer, summer scrolls down. used to say, open your Bibles. Now I say, power them up. This is what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Away from me, you evildoers. I'm going to read some, uh, a couple of readings from the Old Testament. You don't need to turn to these. Uh, you can follow them on the screen. Just keep your finger in Matthew. But I'm going to read them to set the scene. They show the background. What Jesus says in this sermon in some ways isn't new. He draws together all that's most important about what God taught in the Old Testament. And... And so I want to show you this, uh, something of the context that he's talking against. So this is a reading from 1 Samuel 16 about the appointment of a king in Israel. Again, you don't need to turn to it, just follow it on the screen. I'm reading 1 Samuel 16. Uh, Samuel's just arrived at David's town and knows that the king is going to be one of David's uh, family. When they arrived, 
at David's family. Samuel saw Eliab, that's David's brother, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And David took that lesson to heart. And then when he came to write his, his songs, which is what we have in the Psalms, he wrote about it. This is, I'm going to read again from Psalm 51. Again, don't worry about turning to it. I'll just keep the reading on the screen. Verse 10. David is coming and he's saying sorry to God for something that he's done wrong. Uh, extraordinary thing that he's done wrong. And he concludes his prayer by praying that God would change him so he doesn't do it again in the future. It says this, reading from verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a right spirit, a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me, uh, sorry I've lost my place. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. David had actually murdered his friend, so whatever you've done this morning... I hope it's not that. Take joy that if it is that, God can forgive you. You who are God, my saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you, God despise so that's the context of what Jesus says what about how it's applied how did his followers and his friends and his family uh, come to understand what he'd said well this is what his brother James wrote James is an interesting guy actually just have a digression for a minute because I can uh, James is a really interesting guy, one of the most interesting writers in the, Old, in the New Testament. He doesn't get read a lot, I think, because his book's at the back of the Bible, so it was unfortunate for him. But um, uh, he's actually Jesus' brother. And Jesus' brothers, during his lifetime, um, tried to have him, um, what we would now call sectioned at one point. Uh, you can find the story in the Gospels. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah or even particular teacher. In John 7, they try and trick him into going up to Jerusalem and getting arrested. So, I mean, I don't know how bad your family relations are this morning, but... Um, they're probably not as bad as all that. And uh, yet after Jesus died and was executed as a criminal, James becomes, has this powerful experience of seeing Jesus alive and meeting him again and realizing that his brother, whom he tried to trick into being arrested and had sectioned as a mental patient, um, was actually the risen son of God and becomes the leader of a church of thousands in Jerusalem. So it's a really extraordinary uh, man. And this is what he says when he was thinking about what his brother had taught. I'm reading from James 1 and verse 22. He says to the churches he was pastoring, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Then finally, we've read about Jesus' brother. What about his best friend, John? Well, John says this in 1 John 3, verse 16 to 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us love, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. It's the word of God. And again, if you're new to this church, one of the reasons why we read so much of the Bible is because that really is God's word. What I say isn't. Um, I'm just trying to explain it. So um, it's really good and important to hear it. Everything we teach comes from the Bible because we believe that God's inspired it and given it to us to live. So what does it mean, what Jesus says in Matthew 7? What does it mean when he describes those who say, Lord, Lord, but do not enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, he's giving a warning. He's warning us that there are those, and he doesn't say who they are, and I'm grateful for that, because it's always tempting to say it's you and not me who assume that they have a right to the kingdom of heaven when they don't. It's a sobering passage. That's one of the reasons why I started with the governator, because actually what Jesus has to say is quite difficult. So it's important that we come to it hearing it. There are those who come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, they they own the name Christian. They, They say we are Christian people, and yet Jesus says, you may call yourself Christians, but I never knew you. I don't know you. So who are these people? Well, they are people who've done remarkable things. You see, they say the right things. These are not the irreligious Jesus um, actually calls everyone to repent. He, he has an enormous ministry amongst those who are irreligious, who are tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners and uh, uh, know that they're that way. But, and he calls each one of them to repent. He says to the lady who was caught in adultery, I'm not going to judge you, but go and sin no more. You know, be faithful to your husband. But he spends more time warning those who are religious not to fool themselves about who they are. These are people who say the right stuff. Lord, Lord. I suppose now you might find them on the God channel. You know, with all the trappings of religion, they might be wearing a robe or with a massive cross or quick to uh, explain what the gospel means or quick to tell other people where they're wrong. There's a, a wonderful... Um, Story, I just finished my project to uh, read everything Agatha Christie published um, under her own name. 
uh, all of her novels. And I, I did it in about a year. And it's a great project. I really commend it to you. It's well worth doing. Uh, they're awesome stories, except for Passenger to Frankfurt, which is awful. Um, just terrible. May she rest in peace. I finished it with um, what I think is, is her masterpiece, which is And Then There Were None. Uh, and I'm not going to spoil this story for you, but I do recommend that you don't read it in the dark on your own. Uh, because it's one of, the, one of the few truly terrifying books that I've ever read. And I actually know what the ending is, and I'm still scared of it when I read it. And uh, in this story, there is a lady uh, called Miss Brent, who is a picture, I think, of everything Jesus is warning about here. She's full of piety and yet has no pity. If you were to look at her life and listen to her words, you'd think actually all of her doctrine is exactly right. And Agatha Christie was a committed Christian lady. She was um, a fervent Anglican. And she writes this, this, this character who has no mercy on anyone. But in her words, if you unpick her words, there's nothing that you could reproach her for. One of the least sympathetic characters that Agatha Christie ever wrote. And yet... Everything she says is right. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not tell people about you? They're successful in whatever they accomplish for God. They've built big churches, if I can use a contemporary analogy. They have started international businesses. They are people who have done remarkable things. Did we not drive out demons in your name? We were, going, we were the ones who were doing the stuff. We were on there. We had massive following. We established the Christian Union in our school, and pretty soon it was the biggest club. We uh, set our face to build a business, and we, by the time I was 30, I employed 30,000 people. Did we not drive out demons in your name? They, they do wonderful things. You see, this is the funny thing. I, I think it would be easy for us if God was only ever willing to work through people who were good and nice. And then you just say, well, where is, uh, where is the success? But God knows that no one is good and nice. Everyone is broken and needs grace. So he tends to work through anybody. So you find that, you find that there are people where good stuff comes from their ministries. You know, they say, did we not do wonderful things, miraculous things even, in your name? And yet Jesus says, I, I never knew you. Why? Why are these people whose words are so good, or at least so orthodox, whose ministries seem to be so successful, whose, whose personal lives seem to be so successful, their families look great, they live in a massive house, they have all the money they could need, and uh, who do wonderful things, who seem to help the poor. Why is it that at the end of their lives, they come and meet Jesus and he says, I'm sorry, who are you again? There's a reason why Jesus finishes the sermon here. He has a story he tells of the man who built his house on the rock. John's, John's going to explain to us in a minute that, that in, in a, a couple of weeks' time that's a picture of everything. But, but actually he finishes his instruction here. Because in this set of three verses, in this paragraph, everything he's been trying to teach about the human condition comes together. You see, we think that all the words that we speak, that all the wonderful things that we do, that the success, in inverted commas, of our lives are what God should care about. 
I, I, I would venture to say, even if we say, well, I'm a good Western liberal, I feel guilty about my privilege, I am committed to helping the poor, fundamentally, even that, we then think, is something God should care about. And what Jesus is saying is not really that. God does not really care about that. It, it's not that first importance is our work for him. That he looks and sees... That, I mean, bless, bless Jesus for saying this. Because as a pastor of a tiny church in a village, I love this, I love this passage. Because I, it's tempting to look, I will be honest with you, in my own heart, it's tempting to look and see a pastor of some 5,000-person church in Houston, in Texas, and think, wow, God must be really pleased with him. I mean, look at the state of his teeth. They're so white, I could see my face in them. And his tan, and look at the amphitheatre. You know, I'm setting the chairs out on Friday after the toddler group, and I think, shall we put in five rows or six rows this week? And he's thinking, shall we imply, employ 60 cleaners or 70? Because there are so many seats to establish, and who's going to run the gym? And I'm sitting there thinking, am I going to get a volunteer to run toddler group while I'm away, or do I need to come back and sing and dance for the kids? Because... And it's tempting to look at that and think, wow, Jesus must be so pleased with him. And, and, and... That's not what matters to God. I'm not saying it's unimportant. You know, peace be upon my brother in Texas. Peace be upon those who have built massive CUs in their schools, massive uh, businesses, whose family are wonderfully turned out in ties and waistcoats when they come to church and sit well-behaved with their hands on their laps. Peace be upon you. It's not what God cares about most of all. God doesn't even care about evangelism, actually, first and foremost. Now, do evangelism. Please, share Jesus with people, because he's the hope of their lives. He will transform their existence. He's transformed mine, and he will transform them. Please do go and share Jesus with people. But if, if we get the idea that actually the more people we convert, the more happy God is, then we're fast walking our way into being fake disciples. It's not what, it's not what God cares about, first and foremost. God isn't oppressed by great achievements or acts of public piety. There's nothing wrong with them. As such, they are good. Just as Damon David was saying, you don't delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices. Well, burnt offerings and sacrifices are good. But without the heart, they're worth nothing. Without the heart, they're worth nothing. They're not what God is really interested in. It's a heart attitude to God and to others that is of first importance. The person Jesus describes in our reading, the Arnie, if I can put it that way, the one who's leading a double life, is someone who's very happy to claim the kingdom of heaven. They own the badge of the kingdom. They use Jesus' name to bolster their own morality, or they do work in his name for their own success and pride, but they're not actually willing to obey heaven's king. They want to own the name of the kingdom of heaven as a badge. But they don't actually want to obey its king. The people Jesus describes are happy to do things for Christ. Perhaps we think of it as a favour. Lord, Lord. In your name I built this enormous building. Aren't I great? I'm not asking for much. I just want you to say thank you. Just say thank you and then we'll be even. And I'll go into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, I don't really need your building. I mean, lovely, wonderful, well done. And I actually know you. 
So can you step aside because this person's coming in? They're happy to do things for Christ, but they refuse to listen to Christ or submit their lives to him. They desire Christ's power, but are not interested in his character. Such is the path of those who desire the trappings of faith in worldly or unworldly terms, but never acknowledge their need for grace or desire that their lives be changed. So why this is a warning to the religious. Jesus spends more time warning the religious than anyone else. What leads us to to become like this? What can lead us to become like this? Well, I, I think there are two reasons, as I've been sort of meditating on this this week, two reasons that can lead us down this path. Um, one is a problem, what I call a problem of the head, and one is a problem of the heart. Now, problems of the head are always easier to solve. Problems of the head are mistakes in what we think. And uh, mistake in what you think is quite easy, just change your mind. Right? Um, John Wesley actually said, I, I don't believe that God will condemn anyone for having the wrong opinion about something. But actually, the, the way they live, their heart is much more important. And, and I think that's, there's something to that. Mistakes of the head are much easier to address. We can have, if this isn't you, please just bear with me for a moment because I'm going to do some theology. Uh, you can be in church, and particularly in Protestant churches, all your life and end up with a theology of salvation, of justification, of being made right with God is what that means, by grace through faith that says, I just need to believe in Jesus and that's all I need. I'm, I'm saved by Jesus and I just need to believe in him and I can carry on living the way I want. And it's, it's a problem with the head, actually. Someone's taught you wrong. Justification by faith means that all that matters is whether it's what we believe. And I'm, I'm really sorry that's not true. Uh, if you've grown up with that doctrine, you might hold it very closely to you, and I want to come and say I love you and I respect um, you, but I'm sorry that's not what Jesus teaches. And, and, and by the way, it's not what the Reformers taught either, Luther or Calvin or Wesley, and none of them, no one in church history has been considered a mainstream teacher has taught that. It's not right. And it finds expression, particularly in America at the moment, but it comes over to the UK because everything's so connected now in, in this feeling like we can believe in Jesus and yet carry on behaving the way we want. And we don't then have to take care of the poor because we believe in Jesus and we're saved by our belief. We don't then have to uh, repent of our affairs because we believe in Jesus and we're saved by our belief. Or we can use pornography with impunity because we believe in Jesus and we're saved by our belief. You know, it goes on like this. Actually, in the Bible, when the Bible talks about faith, faith is an active thing. We are saved through faith, but faith works. We'll put it in St. Paul, the kind of paragon of this view. He describes faith as obedience. Read Romans 1 again. The obedience of faith, Romans 1 verse 2. Uh, or James, Jesus' brother, says this. He says, you say you're saved by faith. Well, good. But faith without works, faith that does nothing is dead. St. John, if, we, if Christ so loved us, let us love one another in actions as well as in, in words. Well, I believe in salvation, justification by faith, but faith works. It is Jesus' death and resurrection that saves us. We could never add to it when we've passed it, but we can't simply say, I believe, and never do. So if that's the teaching that you've grown up with, if, you, if there's been a kind of error in the way that we think, then actually that's just something we need to correct by reading the Bible. And actually come to see that, that the faith that we have is not just a question of ticking the right box, I believe these things to be true, but I do these things. That's what faith means. 
pistis. It's a Greek word. It means trust. Right? Each one of you is trusting a chair at the moment. Why? Because you sat down on it. If someone says, I, I trust the chair to hold my weight, but they never sit down on the chair, I question whether they really trust it. That's a problem with the head. But there is a more serious problem, which is a problem with the heart. And I think this lies at the heart of a lot of religious hypocrisy. Whether it's from the uh, hyper-Pentecostal and teachers who manipulate people for money and build enormous followings but never seem to own the teachings of Jesus through to the high church bishops who were that, you know, from the 19th century who became bishops because the other son was in the army. You read Jane Austen. First son goes into the army. The first son's the heir, second son in the army, third son in the church. Why? Because it's a good job for a, a nobleman. I think, well, no. What is the error that lies behind that? It's a misunderstanding of the heart. We own the name of religion, we do all the good works we like, without accepting that we, as individuals, are broken and sinful in need of forgiveness and grace. I had a relative who was like this. And I don't know, by the end of her life, I'd say it was different, but certainly at one point, um, she was a committed, a very committed Anglican. Um, Peace be upon them. I love my Anglican brothers and sisters. I'm not preaching against them. But she prayed the words of the prayer of confession every week. You know, I can't remember off the top of my head, but she prayed the prayer book words of confession, a bit like we did earlier. And we're doing that partly because we're training ourselves to come and to say sorry and training the children to come and to say sorry and then to receive forgiveness, right? That's why we do it. She was happy to confess that humanity as a whole was sinful and broken. She'd lived through the wars. You didn't need to know. You need a degree in theology to work out there was something wrong. But if you said to her, are you actually a sinner? Are you actually selfish? Do you actually do anything wrong? And said, can you just give me an example? Like, I'm not judging, but can you just give me an example of something where you think you personally need to say sorry to God? She would have looked at you and said, I'm not sure I even really understand the question. I'm basically good. Except that we do, by which I mean you do, but I don't. You know, that lies at the heart of everything from the Pentecostal preacher in his white suit with the bling. You know, he said to him, do you feel like you actually need to repent because you are a sinner and filled with pride and with selfishness, just like I am? Well, not really, no. Touch not the Lord's anointed. Well, you go to the, you know, uh, the 18th century bishop in Austin's England and say, do you actually think that you, living in a palace, need to... Repent and be forgiven, just like the beggar you seem to be lecturing every week does. Because you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The answer comes back, no. We can own the name of Christ, we can work for him, but we cannot really believe that we need him. Rather, it can seem that Christ really needs us. Otherwise, who would do all the prophesying and mighty works? My friends, that's a dangerous place to be. Few find themselves so far from Jesus as religious people whose hearts are gripped by pride. Few find themselves so far from Jesus as people who are religious but proud. Those who find ourselves in this position need to hear the call to come in brokenness of heart and ask for mercy. 
We need it just as much as the rest of humanity. So what's the good news in all this? Well, the good news is that God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that anyone, anyone who believes in him can receive forgiveness and eternal life. If we're willing to follow the Lord as well as speak of the Lord, then we receive forgiveness, healing, hope, and peace. What is it that God looks for in response? Well, it's what we talked about at the start. One who is willing to accept that they're not in charge, who is humble. As Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One who, knows in their, in, who in their humility knows they need grace and seeks it from God. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. One who is willing to do what Jesus teaches, to yield control of their lives and live his way. As Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and they will be filled. If you've never thought about this for yourself, then come to Christ, repent and be baptized and you will receive the Holy Spirit. If you're trying to work out how to live this, Wesley gave three principles. I think they're good. First, do no harm. That's easy. Stop doing stuff that hurts other people. Don't debate it, just stop it. Second, do all the good you can. Look at what Jesus says is good and do it. Give, forgive, bless, bring peace, be faithful. Do all the good you can. Third, practice spiritual disciplines. Read your Bible. You want to follow Jesus as Lord? Find out what he says. Pray, meet with others. The kingdom of heaven is given to those who are humble. Seek grace and are willing to obey Jesus. So let's be quiet now. We're just going to take a few minutes to be silent and to pray, to ask God to come and speak to us. And then Joel is going to lead us in a couple of songs of worship in response.